And good morning. Uh, my name's Ian. This is the fourth in a series of sermons that Carl's asked me to preach on Paul's letter to the Philippians. The fifth and final one is scheduled for later in the year, so watch this space. Now, some of you will know that uh, for the past few years, my wife Susan and I have been playing the ukulele. Now, this is us at the great Adelaide ukulele picnic earlier this year, where we performed with a group that we run. There were about 500 people there altogether, despite showers all day. People made nice comments about our performances there and in other groups, but we're not really at a level where we'd want to boast too much about our abilities, particularly when we go and see people playing who really know what they're doing. There's an amazing group called the Wheat Chief Ukulele Collective. They perform regularly at the Adelaide Fringe, and we go along to see them and, and hear them uh, every year. Now, I'd like to show you a picture of this group, but they do seem to be a bit shy, and this is the best I could find online. <laughs> the first time we saw them was not long after we'd started learning the ukulele. I felt like giving up. There was no way I'd ever reach their standard. Well, I didn't give up. I pressed on towards the goal, well aware of my deficiencies, and I did manage to improve a bit. But if I do feel tempted to boast about my abilities, I only have to think about the Wheat Chief Ukulele Collective to get my feet back on the ground. In today's reading, Paul tells us about others who want to boast and about how he keeps his own feet on the ground. He warns the Philippians about two different groups that might lead them astray, either backwards to Jewish legalism or outwards to conformity with the surrounding culture. So let's recall a bit of background about Philippi. It was a city in Macedonia, which today is called Greece, and here's a map of Paul's second missionary journey when he first visited them. You'll see, by the way, that Thessalonica is not too far away. Paul visited them too and later wrote them a couple of letters. Philippi was a Roman colony where the worship of the emperor as lord and savior was the norm. Paul is in prison, probably in Rome as he writes this letter, and he knows that the Philippians too could be in danger of persecution for their faith. Earlier in the letter, he's been calling them to humility and unity as a response to this. In verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2, he called them to rejoice with him despite his, appear his imprisonment and their persecution. Then there's the end of chapter 2, which is a bit of a digression concerning his fellow workers, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Well, this is a letter after all, not a theological treatise. But now he gets back and reiterates his conclusion. As Chris mentioned, and like the new song we started with, Rejoice, he says to the Philippians in verse 1 of chapter 3, further, rejoice, despite your persecution, rejoice. But then he moves on to other matters. Evidently matters he's written about before, according to verse 1. Maybe he's heard something about events in Philippi, or maybe he just wants to remind them of the gospel message. The first of his two warnings comes in verse 2. You might like to open your Bibles there if you want to follow along. Where he writes... Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Strong language. Who's he talking about here? The following verses make it clear. It's those who want to make Jewish ritual a prerequisite for followers of Jesus. 
Sometimes in other letters he calls them the circumcision group. What was the basis for their beliefs? Well, it came from the Bible, the Jewish Bible, our Old Testament, where in Genesis 17 we read God's command to Abraham. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So circumcision was a sign of membership of the people of God. But was the physical act the important part? Well, no, it wasn't. But let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and all your soul and live. These are the words of Moses who led the Israelites out of Egypt, starting them on the way to the promised land. He's prophesied that they will fall away from following God despite all the miracles that God has done in saving them from slavery in Egypt. But now, in spite of that, he promises them reconciliation when the mark of the people of God would no longer be physical, but circumcision of the heart shown in love for God. The circumcision group insisted on the command to Abraham but ignored Moses' words. They saw ritual as more important than love. As I said, we can read more about them in Paul's other letters. In Romans 2, um, verses 28 and 29, Paul gives more details of his reason for opposing them. A person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. So a person is a Jew, one of the people of God, who is one inwardly. Circumcision is by the Spirit, not by the written code. And then in Galatians 2, verses 12 and 13, we can see why Paul is warning against this group. Their message is tempting. Even Peter and Barnabas were afraid of them. Before certain men came from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate him from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Now that's a worry. And we hear about them in Acts 11. So when Peter came, went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him because he had eaten a meal with Cornelius, a Roman centurion. But Peter told them that God had revealed he should welcome Cornelius. Both Peter and Paul are clear, and the apostles meeting with them in Jerusalem confirmed that non-Jews did not need to conform to Jewish practices. The circumcision group was trying to draw them away from confidence in Christ to confidence in their status as Jews. The pride in their righteousness under Jewish law, pride in their legal status, in their cultural and ethnic status. I could give further examples from Ephesians 2 and Titus 1, but that's enough for today. Though I will just point out that Paul's words come early in each of the letters, chapter 2 in Romans, Ephesians and Galatians, and chapter 1 of Titus, suggesting that this was a significant issue at the time. Getting back to today's passage, Philippians 3 and verse 3, Paul is clear in rejecting the circumcision group's views. For it is we who are the circumcision, that is, God's people, 
we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. As Moses foretold, serving God from the heart through his spirit is the true mark of God's people. Now, it's always good to have a worked example when we're trying to understand something. And Paul gives us one here. In fact, he gives us himself as an example. Three aspects to his example. First of all, there's his Jewish heritage and his zeal for God. Then his rejection of that status. And then his newfound humility. So first, in verses 4 to 6, he spells out in detail all his claims to status with God. He was himself circumcised as a baby a week after his birth. That's in accordance with God's command to Abraham in Genesis 17. He is a descendant of Jacob, indeed, of the tribe of Benjamin. That's one of the two tribes that remained loyal to King David's descendants when most of Israel rebelled. He is a Hebrew of Hebrews, probably meaning that he and his parents spoke Hebrew rather than Aramaic or Greek. No one could claim a more Jewish heritage. And then there were his achievements. He was a Pharisee, careful to observe every detail of the law, going far beyond what was written in the books of the Bible. Their traditions were eventually codified in a book called the Mishnah. This included, for example, a section with four chapters on the cleanliness of hands and how they are to be washed. This was Paul's background. Far beyond fulfilling the law's commands, he could claim a righteousness through his works. And he was active against heresy, as he considered it at the time. He persecuted the Christians who seemed to be leading people away from the traditions that were so important to him. So, if anyone could claim righteousness through his heritage and his achievements, it would be Paul. The only way he's missing out is that he didn't play the ukulele. Well, I suppose the fact it wasn't invented until 1,800 years later is an excuse. But Paul, it seems, had it all. A status in the Jewish world about as high as you can get. But then we get to the second aspect of Paul's example to the Philippians. He rejects the opportunity to claim this status. In verse 7, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. All that he's gained through his heritage... All that he's achieved in his life, he considers as loss. The next verse, verse 8, makes the language even stronger. Everything is, is lost, like the garbage man told us earlier. He considers it garbage. Well, garbage is the NIV translation. The Greek is actually a bit stronger. I'll leave that to your imagination. Uh, what could make Paul reject this high status? What could make him think it worth rejecting everything as garbage? Because he has rejected it. It's not just words. He has left his home and his country and become an itinerant preacher. His message has often been rejected. He suffered persecution as even now under threat of death. What could be so good in comparison that he would consider everything he had as garbage to be abandoned? Well, he tells us in these verses... Their garbage in comparison with the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ his Lord. How did he come to know Jesus? Many of you will know the story in Acts chapter 9. He had been given authority by the high priest and was on the way to Damascus to arrest any followers of Jesus he found there. But on the road to Damascus, he heard the voice of Jesus speaking to him and calling him to proclaim Jesus' name to the world. One of the great turnarounds in history. 
From being a zealous persecutor of the church, he became one of its strongest preachers. After that experience of meeting the risen Jesus, he considered anything less than the presence of Jesus to be worthless, fit only to be cast aside. And what will he gain in place of all this he's casting aside? In verse 9, he will be found in Christ. That is, he will not be dependent on his own status of righteousness with God, but will have the righteousness that comes to him through Jesus. Paul wants to know Jesus and the power of the resurrection. The power of the resurrection. We saw in chapter 2 that Jesus became man and submitted to death on the cross. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago for Jack Page's sermon on Hebrews 2, you may remember how Jesus became a man like us and died to deliver us from death. Jesus became like us through death. And Paul wants to become like Jesus through dying to an earthly glory and finding life in the power of the resurrection. Paul wants us to follow his example as he follows Jesus. Well, I don't know what you're thinking and feeling at this moment, but I'll confess that when I got to this point in writing this sermon, I felt distinctly uncomfortable. Intellectually, I was following Paul's argument with no difficulty, but my emotions weren't exactly keeping up. I can understand what Paul means when he says that everything he has gained is garbage in comparison to knowing Jesus, and I know that that should be true for me, but I'm not sure I can stand up here and say it is. I have some way to go. So I was reassured and and challenged by the third aspect of Paul's example. In verses 12 to 14, he too acknowledges that he has a way to go. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal. Thanks, Paul. That's me. And by the way, notice the difference between the confidence in the Jewish status he could have claimed and his honesty here in acknowledging that he hasn't yet achieved his goal. But he's not letting himself or me off the hook. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me, forgetting what is behind, sometimes a bit of a challenge to forget past failures. I press on towards the goal. So Paul's challenge to me is to press on, even though I'm acutely aware of my failings, keeping the goal of God's kingdom in mind. And what does that look like? In verse 15, Paul speaks of those who are mature, What is the example he's calling him to follow? I mentioned at the start that Thessalonica is not far from Philippi. When Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he spelled it out a bit more. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit, and so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out, from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. They welcomed the message joyfully despite suffering. They turned to God from idols, and the Lord's message rang out from them. A few weeks ago, I was asked to play a song on the ukulele that fits well with today's reading. It's called Wake Up My Mind. Don't worry, I didn't bring my ukulele, so I'm not going to inflict it on you this morning. It starts out. I am a man in the prime of my life. I've got a house and a car and a beautiful wife. It's about someone who has it all and has no reason to look any further to wake up his mind. 
Eventually, he sees that there's more to life than possessions and status. But in the last verse, he realizes, I've left it too late to wake up my mind. It's not a Christian song, but its message could well be. In today's passage, Paul is reminding the Philippians not to let their minds go to sleep. The circumcision party was pulling them back to Jewish legalism, but looking at verses 18 to 19, it seems there was a second temptation. Pressure of the surrounding culture was tempting the Philippians to turn to worldly things. Some people, perhaps even leaders in their church, were acting as enemies of the cross, avoiding suffering. Unlike Paul, they were afraid of what might happen if they followed Christ. So they were avoiding suffering. Their minds were set on worldly things. Paul again condemns them in strong terms. Their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame, warning that their destiny is destruction. The Philippians must keep their minds awake and follow the mature Christians, avoiding the temptations of the world. Content to let the world go by, to count its gain but loss, as we sang earlier. In verses 20 and 21, Paul reminds them of their goal in all of this. The promises of Jesus. We see that for Paul, the kingdom of heaven is both now and not yet. Our citizenship is now already in heaven. We're already citizens of the kingdom of God and called to follow Jesus' example, keeping free of the world and its temptations, keeping our minds awake and faithful to him. But still, we await our saviour, His return has not yet happened, but we await with confidence the coming of Jesus Christ in glory, who will transform our bodies by his power to be like him as we should. So let's keep our eyes on the goal, keep on striving to place Jesus Christ in first place in our minds and hearts. And what can get in our way? We started out thinking about boasting. In this letter, Paul has told the Philippians what they shouldn't boast about and what they should What can we learn from Paul's words to the Philippians? Paul warned them and the other churches about boasting of their status in relation to the Jewish law. Well, it's not likely that we're going to boast about being circumcised on the eighth day or about washing our hands according to a four-chapter handbook. But let's not be too hasty to pass by Paul's words. Let's be careful what we're tempted to boast about with our friends or perhaps just to ourselves as we look at others. Maybe we think we have everything under control because we're Anglicans. Or even better, we're members of the Trinity Network. We come to church regularly and give generously to the church and to missions. These are all good things. But they're not the heart of the gospel. Paul might well say that they are garbage in comparison with the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord. Again, Paul warned the Philippians to boast of their position in the world, to avoid the dangers of the cross by finding status in worldly achievements. It's very tempting to rely on our status in the world, tempted to rely on applause for our achievements, for our security, seeing our heritage as giving us a place in the world, taking our value from the friends we have. Again, good things in themselves, but idols if they get in the way of knowing Jesus. We need to be alert for enemies of the cross, what has been called cheap grace, boasting that God will allow us to do whatever we like, fitting in with the culture around us. Putting anything ahead of pressing on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. So what do we have to boast about? Paul tells us in his letter to the Galatians, 
In Galatians 6 and 14, he says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Like Paul, we can boast of because of what God in Christ has done for us. Paul gives us an example to follow. He shows that we have no need to fear suffering for Christ, even as our culture may become more opposed to Christianity because we can boast of our security in him, that we're safe in his arms. We can boast because through his sacrifice we are citizens of heaven and we will be transformed by our Savior at his coming. This message was there long before Paul. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 9 says, This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. So there we are. That's what Paul has to tell us. Don't boast about your faith or godliness. Don't boast about your achievements or worldly wealth. Boast that you've been saved. Boast that you are citizens of heaven. Boast that Jesus is your Lord and Master. Now I do hope no one thinks I'm offering myself as an example in this. As I said, I found Paul's words really, word really challenging. But like him, I pressed on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And I hope you'll follow his example too. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for these words that challenge us if we seek our security in anything but your love. Give us wisdom and courage to follow you, to know your presence with us, and to acknowledge you as our Lord and Savior in a world that has such need of you. In Jesus' name, amen.